I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your works of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. This is verses 11 to 15 of Psalm 77, which along with Psalm 79 are the Psalms appointed for today, Monday, November the 7th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I can say yay because we are done with the book of Ecclesiasticus, and now we're moving into the prophet Joel, who's one of the minor prophets, and as we prepare ourselves for Advent, which is coming up in only about, what, three weeks now, something like that. So um, we're going to be looking at Joel 1, 1 to 13 today. We're over still in the gospel according to Luke, chapter 14, verses 12 through 24, and ultimately in the book of the Revelation, chapter 18, verses 15 to 24. So Joel, the name itself, means one for whom God is the Lord. It's, it's sort of yo L. L is a, a generic Ugaritic, well, not Ugaritic, but, but anyway, Middle Eastern term for God. So El or Elohim. Um, and then you get the Yo, which is the first part, J O Yo. Um, and that would be Yah. So one for whom Yahweh is God. It, it would be the way to translate the name itself. So the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. And there's no indication in Joel's prophecy, just by the way, it's a conundrum uh, and that, that hasn't got a solution. And that is the timing of this. We have no earthly idea when the timing of Joel is. We do know, however, he's prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah, which is based in Jerusalem, as opposed to the northern kingdom of Israel slash Samaria, which is in the northern kingdom. And so there's no mention of the northern kingdom or any northern cities anywhere in this prophecy. So um, it's placed anywhere from about the ninth century BC, which is before the northern kingdom falls to Assyria, and then, of course, before the southern kingdom falls to Babylon. Um, it, there, there's any time between the ninth and about the fourth century, which would be after the return of the exiles. So who knows is the answer to that. <clears throat> so we know, though, that he's talking to the people in Judah because he's from Judah. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Well, what is it? Well, it's this, this locust swarm, uh, and Joel uses this locust uh, swarm and, and the devastation that it leaves behind to announce the coming day of the Lord. He's one of the first people to do this. Obadiah is another who does, but but Joel is one of the first to use this word, day of the Lord, and it doesn't mean day, like, you know, it, it all happened in one day. No, it's that the, the day of the Lord is is when he comes in judgment. So what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. In other words, this is a byword, and it's God announcing his judgment. You need to see this. You need to understand it. And that it's a metaphor, although a terrible one, for God's coming again in judgment is what he's trying to tell the people. He says, write this down. Remember this. Nothing like this has ever happened before. And so he's talking about a real physical phenomenon here with these locusts. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth, because the, the harvest was destroyed. 
for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It's stripped off the bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So, in other words, this, this devastation is so complete, there's nothing left. And he's, he's using that to say it's exactly what it's going to look like in God's wrath, that, that there's nothing going to be left. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. So all the accoutrements that are determined by God to be necessary for proper worship are harmed. In this, so it's not just that that people are going to starve. It's not just that they're not going to have wine. It's not just that they're going to feel this physical problem. No, it's going to affect their worship as well because they're not able to offer the offerings that are required. So Joel is saying, "Nope, this is this is God's doing. It's it, it is in another. He will use another army to come after his people." Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Now, that's going to have a a twofold effect on the priesthood and the Levites, and that that twofold effect is this, that, that they were given a part of the harvest as a tithe for them to eat. So the, they, the priests and the Levites, depended on, on the, um, the offering of the people, not only to fulfill their sacerdotal, their priestly obligations, but also for their own sustenance. So they're, they're going to have a, a double whammy, but so is everybody in Israel. There's going to be famine in the land, and Joel is very clear, this, this is, uh, it's a metaphor, It's saying that's exactly how it's going to be when God comes. He's going to strip everything down and tear it all apart because of his judgment on the land. And he says this is the beginning of that judgment, the announcement of the judgment. But but it's possible always, always possible to to avert that judgment. You get a warning is what he's saying. This is a warning. And we need to be better about that in the church. We need to not let the world shout us down when we when we say these things. I do see God's judgment on America. Um, a friend of mine was was very clear that after New York celebrated the ability to abort children, um, even up into birth, and when they made a great celebration of that a couple of years ago, it was right before COVID hit. Now, do, do I think COVID was God's judgment on America? Well, it's partly um, I, I do, actually. It, now, it hit the whole world, but it hit us far worse than it hit the rest of the world. And, and there's got to be a reason for that. I don't think it was completely mismanagement either. It, there's, there's something more at play. And, and I do believe because we um, explicitly say that we are one nation under God, then judgment begins at the household of God. And so it's going to begin with the people who claim to be God's people, but who have gone astray and are failing to uphold his name. 
in the way that it ought to be. And I think that's true in the church, but it's true in society in general as we move further and further away from the Lord and, and as we, we begin to allow the, the rest of the country to, tell, to curse us and to say that, well, you all want a theocracy. And the answer to that should be, yeah, I do, actually. I absolutely do want a theocracy with him in charge. Not me, not any other man that I'm aware of either. I pray for that kingdom to come. I pray for it every single day. And, and that's the important thing that we need to do and we need to hear. But, but we need to not be afraid or ashamed to say God's, God um, uses these um, natural kinds of things in order to announce his coming judgment in order to prepare his people for the coming of that judgment and for us to prepare the world by, by heightened sense of urgency in proclaiming the gospel. In the gospel today, um, Jesus uh, he's a, he's a guest, right at a Pharisee's house, and, and he's observed some things, and he's he's already said some things to the guests. Don't take the best seats because somebody more important than you might come, and you'll be asked to step down, and then you'll be embarrassed. And now he says to the man who invited him, "When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors." Well, most of us would look and go, "Well, then why would I even give a banquet if I don't invite my friends, brothers, relatives, or rich neighbors?" I mean, it's not that I, I have rich neighbors or whatever, but, but, but that, that would be the common thing to do in that culture, certainly, and certainly even in our culture. You know, I invite my friends and relatives and brothers whenever I have a banquet. That's what we do, right? We gather at Thanksgiving. We gather at Christmas, whatever, and, and any other time. He says, don't invite those people lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, you'll get something back for it. Well, that... that the, the host is probably looking and thinking, well, that's the whole point. That's the reason I invite the people you just said, so they'll invite me back. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Well, huh. So Jesus says that, that even the things we do in this life matter, and, and that that the way we conduct our lives and, and the, 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 uh, the, the people we invite to a banquet somehow have something to do with a reward at the resurrection of the just. So it's loving your neighbor. It's loving those and providing for those who can't provide for themselves. It's lifting up other people. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything's now ready. So they would announce that, that the feast, the banquet would be held on such and such a day. But the timing of that banquet depended on multiple things. If it was a wedding banquet, it depended on when the groom finished the work on the, the addition to the father's house that he was building. It also depended on the timing of when everything was prepared and the food was ready to be eaten. And so you said it's going to be this day, and on the day, we'll let you know when to come. So that's what's going on here. So at the time for the banquet, he sent the servant to say to those who had been invited, and they would have RSVP'd and said, yep, I'll be there. He's come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Really? You bought it sight unseen? You bought a field, sight unseen. Now that you've paid for it, you're going to go look at it? Is that what you're saying? 
The second said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Same deal. You, you bought five yoke of oxen and without examining them? All right. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I can't come. You didn't see that coming? You, you, you could have said in advance, I have other plans. This guy, you know, if, if I can remember back in college when we helped Suzanne's sister and brother-in-law cater. I can remember back-to-back parties given by the same person, actually. They, they were like one Friday and then the next Friday. And the first Friday, they invited, you know, a lot of people. And way more people came than they had planned for. And so we were running out of food. We ran out of wine. It was really bad. I mean, because there were so many people, it was unreal. It was like three times the number of people who they had told us to prepare for. Because they would always prepare for about 25% more. But this is like literally like three times the number of people. It was awful. So the following week, same person giving another party says, well, prepare for, you know, that number again. Well, there was like, 10% 10% of that number showed up the second time. And so, it, you know, it, it's, it, it can be horrible if you prepared for all these people and then suddenly nobody shows up and that's what's happened. These people are RSVP'd. Now they're saying at the last minute, yeah, I'm not going to come. I mean, this is just clearly disrespecting the person who's throwing the banquet here because all these things are just bogus excuses. There's not a single one of these excuses that holds any water. You, you know, you, you didn't, you don't buy a field or buy oxen without examining all these things first. And you surely knew that you were going to get married or you could have notified us anywhere in between. Um, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, and then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, who are the, exactly the same class of people Jesus just told people to invite to their banquets. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Make them come, he says. Go out and find people. Just force them to come in because I want my house to be full. I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And what's he talking about here? Is he just giving rules about etiquette and how to give a banquet properly? No, he's, he's clearly talking about the kingdom of God because he said all this in response to the guy's statement about blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is, is that, that yes, they are, but, but the ones who have been invited, the ones who are expecting to be there, who have said they will be there, are not going to come in. No, and, and I'll have to go out and find other people. You know, those people y'all don't like, the people you don't invite to your banquets, mm-hmm, they're going to eat at the banquet of the kingdom of God. Because I see you and I know you. You're, you're not going to get in. And it's a painful statement, but it's, it's a clear statement of Jesus about God's judgment. And, and, he, and it goes back, I think, to what we're told in John 2, which is that Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people in Jerusalem because he knew what was in the heart of men. That was, I'm sorry, that's John 3. And then in John 4, he entrusts himself to the Samaritan woman at the well because, well, he knew what was in the heart of men, and he knew something about that woman that made her special. In the Revelation passage, remember we've got this judgment on the great city, which is described also as the great prostitute riding on the beast. And so the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her, the city, Babylon, will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Now, is Babylon just the, what it's called, or, or is it literally talking about Babylon? And the answer is yes. It's both. Um, we don't know. 
ultimately, I mean, because this has a present application when it's written, when John receives the revelation and he gives it to the churches, then it has a present application for who that would be, but it has also a future application for, for the final coming judgment of the Lord. So we, we can come up with a whole bunch of different ideas about what it might be, and it, it can be—it depends on where you live. You know, if you're in Britain, you might think it's London. If you're in the U.S., you might say, well, it's, it's D.C. or it's New York or it's, um, it's Los Angeles or whatever. You know, we, you can always speculate on what these things would be. But, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have to be one city— because what we've got now in this global economy is is a thing where you look up and you, and you say, well, you know, it could be this city and this city and this city and this city all over the world because they're all debauched at some level, um, which is not to say that, that smaller towns aren't debauched as well. But, um, but there's something that has a, the big city has an allure in ways that small towns typically do not. And it, it offers an anonymity that you can't get typically in a small town. And so you can, you know, feast on whatever it is your eyes might want to feast on. And, and, you know, and I don't mean just your eyes either. And so, and nobody knows you, you know, nobody knows who you are. So you can get away with everything there. You can, you can let your imagination and your sinful nature run riot. So last for the great city, these are the merchants who gained wealth from her. They're standing off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. They think, well, they've been judged, but, but I seem to have gotten away. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And that sounds very much like the Joel passage about the locusts. Now, all this could happen. I mean, look at Pompeii, for instance, a city completely wiped out in an instant by a volcanic eruption. And all the shipmasters and the seafaring men, sailors, and all those who trade, whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. Now, in this day, certainly most of the trade routes were... Um, we're not land trade routes. You could carry a lot more cargo on board a ship than you could in any other way. And so a lot of the great cities of the world at that time were um, port cities. So then those shipmasters and the seafaring men and the sailors and all the others, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. You know, and we've certainly had this divide between city and country, between uh, red states and blue states, between the cities and the flyover places in America where, where people would, would see these, this enmity and the superiority complex this typically comes from those uh, from the cities and the the sneering condescension of referring to anything as a flyover state, for instance. And so you could see why there would be this animosity that that the the people in those flyover places would would rejoice at this. But we're not intended to do that. We are not intended to feel that way because these are people created in God's image. And I've told you this before, that, that the story is told within Judaism that on the day that Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea, the angels wanted to celebrate, but God wouldn't allow it because these two were those created in the image of God. They had despoiled that image 
by sin and the, and the hardness of heart, but at the same time, they're, they're still those who are created in the image of God, and so it matters. And, and we're to have that same attitude, and so I, I'm thankful for people who, who go and, and minister in the cities and bring the gospel to those places. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bride and bridegroom will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorceries. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth." So there's a rejection there. And this, this whole thing about sorcery um, just throws me back to this teaching from Michael Heiser about the Nephilim and how they came and they taught things that, that were not proper knowledge. And so there's criticism of the cities. And, and, and you see that even in the Gospels. You see the way the city reacts to Jesus, the city of Jerusalem, versus the way that the people in the hinterlands react. And when he comes in, he comes in with a great retinue of pilgrims who are proclaiming him to be the king and the son of David. And then he comes into the city and, and he's rejected there in the city. And so you can see this again and again and again, the cosmopolitan nature of cities being such that there, there's a superiority kind of a thing um, that goes on, but but also a sneering disregard for those rubes from the hinterland who, who who are less sophisticated. And so here, that's exactly what you're seeing is God's judgment on on those attitudes of um, of condescension, essentially. And, and what what we consider great, what John actually initially marveled at, he says, is something that that's going to be thrown down. There's something to marvel at, though. It does. It's an attractive force. And then ultimately what we're, what we're shown here is, is that it'll be thrown down in an instant. It's, it's a vanishing, fleeting thing. It's, it's vanity. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, this stuff's all gone in a day. Like I said, happened in Pompeii, happened in Sodom, happened in Gomorrah. Um, they're all gone. And it, it could happen anywhere on earth. And we need to be prepared for that, and we need to constantly be praying for the coming of the kingdom, but we need to understand what it means when the kingdom comes, and, and therefore we should approach that with solemnity and with fear and not with rejoicing.